This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to Eric Hazen, Charles Labiner, and Joe Herbers, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 465 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Matthew Iglesias. He co-founded Vox in 2014 along with Ezra Klein and Melissa Bell, and he also co-hosts the political podcast The Weeds. His books include Heads in the Sand and The Rent is Too Damn High, and he runs a popular blog over at slowboring.com. And we'll be speaking with him today about his love of Star Trek and about his new book, One Billion Americans, which argues that America should try to triple its population over the next few decades in order to stay competitive with China. And now here's our interview with Matthew Iglesias. All right, sir, so here with Matthew Iglesias. Welcome to the show. Hi. Okay, so back in 2013, you wrote an article called I Boldly Went Where Every Star Trek Movie and TV Show Has Gone Before. So tell us about that. Oh, so this was a uh, Slate had, or maybe they still have, uh, this kind of running feature called The Completist. Um, and so, you know, somebody would take on all of some body of work, you know, every Philip Roth novel or every James Bond movie. Um, and in my case, it was every, uh, Star Trek, um, episode, uh, everyone then extant. Uh, this was before Star Trek Discovery or Star Trek Picard came out. Um, I watched them all, uh, watched the movies. Um, I think this was when the, the first of the kind of reboot, uh, ones had come out. Um, and you know, it was fun. It was like a fun slatey exercise. And then I got to write, you know, my sort of big, you know, little rankings, but also my big, uh, theme essay about Star Trek and it's kind of, um, Great society, liberal optimism, and uh, what I found appealing about that, even though it was a little bit uh, considered hokey by sort of modern day cultural and in some ways modern day political standards. How long did that take you to watch every episode of Star Trek? Well, I mean, I wasn't starting cold. You know, I had mostly seen them. I had to do a lot of uh, catch up on Voyager, uh, which um, is not my favorite show. And, you know, I went and rewatched uh, certain key things, you know, to make sure I could get my favorites and all kinds of things like that. But I mean, I have spent many, many, many hours uh, watching Star Trek in my life uh, from back when The Next Generation was in syndication originally to, you know, Netflix has had them all on. Um, I, I used to like to watch uh, TNG reruns constantly. I mean, I'm I was a big, a big Trekkie. I mean, I, I don't like the newer stuff as much. It's it's does not speak to me in the same way. But so you would watch, say, every episode of TNG. So you didn't have to go. You knew you didn't have to watch any of those. Or... I, I'd seen the whole original series, all of TNG, all of Deep Space Nine um, already before. I was really just catching up on some um, uh, Voyager stuff. Were you glad? Were you excited to watch Voyager, or, or was it kind of like a a chore to to get through? <laughs> you know, Voyager, I think, is a little bit of a of a slog uh, because I mean, it's just not quite. 
they're in a little bit of a weird space, right? Because in theory, it's this story of like their journey back home uh, to the Alpha Quadrant, but they don't really make any progress across the whole time, right? It's not actually plotted out as like a multi-season story about how this crew gets back home. Instead, it's like one damn thing after another to the point where you practically prevent the, you know, forget what the premise is. And then all of a sudden at the end, there's this like, you know, it's like classic old style TV, like double header episode, uh, to, to wrap up the series, but it, it, it's very unbalanced as a premise. And then you remember, right? Like, why did they send them, uh, to the Gamma Quadrant in the first place. It's, well, you know, the show was running concurrently with Deep Space Nine originally. They were making TNG movies. So they wanted to do Star Trek, but they wanted to physically isolate the cast from the other plot lines because this was not, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe level, like, intricate plotting across everything. But it basically, the the whole setup was not done for in-show reasons. And so it's just sort of never really worked on a certain fundamental level. Yeah, well, so then say more about that that essay you wrote. Um, I wanted to quote part. You say, um, Star Trek has a very particular take on what it means to be human. Part of what it means, the franchise teaches us, is participating in an ongoing progressive project of building a utopian society. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the, these Trek episodes, they, they show you, and in some ways you particularly see it in, in some of the lesser Trek. I think my, my lead example was from Voyager somewhere in there, and it's, uh, they're rescuing, you know, one of the Borg people, and he says, uh, well, isn't that what, what people do on this ship? They help each other. Um, and it's true, right? Star Trek has this very, optimistic not just optimistic but but like slightly hokey view of things like in the future not only is the technology more advanced uh but life is much better it is much better than it is in the present uh and you learn in deep space nine about how poverty was eliminated you know and in one of the tng movies Picard speaks very scornfully about like capitalism and people who want money. And at other times they talk about, you know, having transcended religion and, you know, Kirk uh, faces down a fake God in, in the fifth movie. <laughs> the amazing um, fifth movie. Yeah. I mean, it's not a good movie, but um, it, <laughs> it sort of is what it is. Right. And it's an incredible um, it's a counterpoint, right, to um, Star Wars, which, you know, I also like and, and people watch where somehow like in the future, they have all this stuff, all these droids and hyperspace flight and all this incredible technology. But living standards don't seem to have improved at all. Uh, whereas Star Trek has this almost more face value thing where it's like, look, if the science and technology was way, way better, um, living standards would be much better. And it's because they have this kind of optimistic view, though, of human political and moral values evolving in tandem with that kind of technology. You know, at one point, they want to disassemble data and do experiments on him. But Picard goes through the legal process. And, you know, data's argument prevails, they agree that he's sentient, even though he's an android, and he should have what we would call human rights, uh, but they give rights to non-humans as well, including to androids. So there's no race of space slaves. Um, he's just a free going being, uh, because the Federation has a good political system and, you know, the judges make wise decisions. And that's really different, I think, from most of what you see in culture. So did growing up watching Star Trek, did that influence your political outlook at all, you think? Um, <laughs> you know, it's hard to say what influences what exactly. Um, you know, my dad and, and his family were sort of, um, 
uh, old-fashioned socialist types. Um, and, you know, Star Trek embodies some of that kind of idea, some of a sort of classical, I, I always thought, at least I've read it in terms they would have put it, this sort of classic, um, Marxist idea that as technology advanced, you would get a crisis of overproduction, right? And that to organize the economy along market lines in a world of replicators and dilithium crystals would actually be completely unworkable. Um, and so you essentially have to move to this from each according to his means to each according to his needs, uh, kind of thing in order to make it, make it viable. Um, I was writing named Peter Fraze, who uh, writes for Jacobin a lot, and, and he did a piece called Four Futures that I think lays this out in like really technical, like socialist terms about uh, the, the different ways this is supposed to work in, in dialectical materialism. But that was sort of always how I saw the show. And it is something that I take in my politics that I think that, um, I don't know how to say it, but like that progress is good, that it is good to see change, that we need to change things um, to keep pace with that kind of stuff, but that you want to be sort of forward looking and believe that the cause of equality um, and human betterment are ultimately going to be served by science and technology. You mentioned your dad there. I was just seeing that your dad is a, a novelist and a screenwriter, right? He is, yes. Did that? Um, so, did you watch a lot of movies growing up, or did you like have connections to film because of that? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we we watched uh, a lot of movies together, stuff like that. It was a it was a content rich uh, household before the before the great screen time panic. Um, he's a big Star Trek fan himself. Uh, you know, we we watched TNG together as a family uh, w w when I was a kid, and you know, uh, that's. That's actually not the kind of writing, uh, that he does primarily. Um, he's a sort of traditional, uh, particularly as a novelist, um, you know, writes kind of straight non-genre literary fiction things. Um, although in, in his movies, he, he did do, he did From Hell, which was a, you know, adaptation of an Alan Moore comic book and gets a little closer to the, the kind of geek culture world. Yeah. And Dark Water as well. Yes, Dark Water, um, which is, uh, I mean, that's an interesting one. I mean, you know, he, he's a professional. So yeah, it's not like he's like a Japanese horror movie, um, like super connoisseur. That's <laughs> not how he, that's not how he got that job. Um, but for a little while, you know, it was like in the house, he was watching a lot of Japanese horror movies because, you know, you want to try to understand, uh, how that genre works and, and, you know, what its sort of main themes are. So in addition to watching Star Trek, were you involved in, reading science fiction or going to conventions or hanging out with other science fiction fans or anything like that? I was not like a huge convention guy. Um, I did go, I, I grew up in New York. So, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of, um, check things out because everything comes to New York, uh, at, at least occasionally. So I, I think I did go to a couple big, um, uh, shows at, at the Javits Center. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I was definitely, there was a, a comic book store, Forbidden Planet, um, a few blocks from my house, uh, which was great and which I always liked to go to. Um, and they, they had a lot of cool stuff there. And, you know, I, I loved, um, the foundation books and, and other Isaac Asimov stuff when I was a kid. I find it, those are weird books to look back on as more of a grown up. I almost struggle to believe that they, that they ever got published in a certain way. Uh, but they really meant a lot to me. What, why do you say that you're surprised they got published? I mean, they're so, 
they're so odd. Like they barely have a plot at all, right? It's like, yeah, um, it's like different so, I mean, characters every chapter. <laughs> yeah, and they're and a, but a lot of it is like the characters just kind of like sit down and expound their political opinions <laughs> to each other about fake. So I mean, of course, like I'm a writer now, right? But I'm I'm not at all a, a fiction writer. I'm a very um, you know I, I write about politics and, and policy, and it's like if I wrote a novel, that's what it would be like. It would just be characters talking about their ideas about how things should go, like they're writing columns to each other. <laughs> um, but it's you know it's it's a little bit strange. Um, I also I I, I really like Dune. Uh, that was one that that I, I I first read when I was a kid and I liked, but I reread um, many many times and I I'm very disappointed that the movie was delayed by the. I mean I understand why the movie was delayed by the pandemic, um, but in addition to the enormous loss of human life and real human tragedies, that's like my personal pandemic tragedy. Yeah, no, it's October 2021. It's killed. They're killing me with that. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, let's, uh, I don't know. I, 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 I am, I'm so torn because if it was available for streaming tomorrow, I would, of course, watch it. So I really wish they would do that. But also, I think it's probably better that they don't do it. You know, I, I, I was, um, I've got a six year old. Um, so, you know, I've been going to movies, uh, less, um, you know, I mean, separate from the pandemic, I used to like to go to the movies a lot. It's hard when you have a little kid, uh, but I, I made the point, uh, to go see, um, uh, Villeneuve's Blade Runner, you know, right when it came out, uh, ditched my family <laughs> and just like went alone to the theater opening night. And I was so glad to have seen that on the big screen. You know, I, I, I made a point to do that. My wife supported me. She, she knew I loved Blade Runner. Um, but like it was really good. You know, it was, I was sometimes you want that cinema experience and particularly to be naive to it is, is very powerful. You know, like you've never seen it before and there it is giant. Yeah. But so you never had any um, ambition to be a novelist or a screenwriter or anything like that? No, I mean, you know, I mean, I think like probably literally every person on the planet has <laughs> at some point been like, oh, my God, I can make an amazing movie. Um, but it's not something I ever um, seriously tried to do, um, you know, because I, I mean, I, I am a writer, so I'm aware of what kind of writing I do well and what kind of writing I don't. A lot of journalists do, uh, they don't write fiction, but they write narrative stuff, at least sometimes. Um, and a lot of people I know in the industry, um, don't do as much of that as they would like to. You know, it's something they, they dabble with, but the pressures in the digital media economy are to be like fast, fast, fast. Um, but they work on narratives, you know, they will like lovingly describe, uh, you know, a, a senator's shoes or <laughs> exactly how he walks, something like that. And so you can tell those guys have uh, the potential. I mean, there's more to writing a good novel than that kind of stuff, but it's like they, they could do it. Um, but I actually really struggle with narrative nonfiction. Um, it's not, it's something I, I have attempted and at times editors have pushed me to try to do more of it, but I, I don't do it well. It doesn't come naturally to me. Um, so to try to leap even further, you know, it doesn't work for me. I mean, I do have that example of Asimov who does this like almost narrative free uh, <laughs> fiction type stuff. Although, I mean, the, um, 
What's this? What, what the 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 first robot book, the the, the Caves, of yeah, Steel, Caves of Steel, is yeah. is more. Um, I don't want to say conventional, but it it's it's more like a like a traditional like character driven narrative that's also science fictional, but it's not just um, like spitballing about yeah. the laws of robotics. What like also it has a real a plot, murder mystery formula. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. But I mean, he, he, it's, it's, right. It's, it's got the murder mystery. It's got like, he's telling you about the, um, the walkways and, you know, how the caves, uh, work and things like that. Um, so, you know, it's all in there. Yeah. I listened to your appearance on the Random Trek podcast, and I was just mm. curious how that came about and if you've ever been on any other science fiction podcasts. <laughs> uh, I think that was the only one. Uh, he reached out to me and, you know, I said yes. And, uh, so it goes. But you didn't know him, or he just saw your Trek article or something? Yeah, yeah. I think I think it came out of that slate piece. Uh-huh. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about, uh, in 2014, there was a National Review writer who kind of, like, called you out for being a fake nerd. Do you, I don't know, do you remember this? No. Uh, so this is uh, Charles C.W. Cook. Uh, oh, yeah. He names a bunch of um, sort of liberal-leaning um, kind of nerds, like Richard Dawkins and Bill Nye, and then, like, you and Ezra Klein and, and so on. Okay. And he says, theirs is the nerddom of Star Wars, not Star Trek, of Mario Kart, and not World of Warcraft, of the latest X-Men movie rather than the comics themselves. I see. I see. Is this, not, well, this is not ringing a bell. <laughs> <laughs> it sort of does. Um, you know, I mean, I think that this is a weird kind of uh, uh, nerd identity politics. Um, I will absolutely plead guilty to not having read a lot of Marvel comic books um, over the years. Um, I, I have watched the movies. I, I think I've established that I'm, in fact, a quite serious Star Trek fan, um, ready to go really deep on it uh, and into some some classic sci-fi stuff. Um, I don't – you know, I mean, there's this kind of like um, – construct that you see there in what you quoted to me right of like of like a nerd and so if you like one thing you have to like everything else um i'm not a gamer um i don't really play video games i did a little bit at one point in my life but i think less than most of my friends when i got older i just like totally stopped uh now i have a six-year-old he enjoys turn-based strategy computer games so you know i do a little bit of that with him but it's it's never been something that um has spoken to me uh and yet you know i have read not just uh have i read dune many times but i've read you know dune messiah i've read uh god emperor of dune many times uh so you know people like different things i i don't i don't know that the the sociology of like uh you know you're a poser because uh, <laughs> you didn't read some old X-Men run makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll say you're not, you're definitely way more familiar with Star Trek than I am. I mean, I any of those, those, <laughs> those, those old shows I haven't watched since I was a kid. Um, so, and I haven't, I've only read the first Dune book. So, you know, yeah, there's definitely different See, there people you go. that have read different you're, things. You're missing out. You know, also like I, I, I liked, um, you know, the, the DC comics have become unfashionable, I think, because their, their movie adaptations are not as good or as popular. Um, but when, that to me, particularly in my prime, uh, comics days was all about, uh, you know, death of Superman and, 
Bane breaking Batman's back and, you know, Azrael coming back. I like the, um, I was talking about this recently. Oh, but it was because they put out the, um, you know, the, the, the Zack Snyder Justice League cut, um, which I watched. And then that made me want to go back and read the, um, the old eighties, uh, Justice League International comic book run, uh, which I remembered having liked a lot. And then rereading it, I like, I loved it all again. I thought it was so, refreshing uh after the like grim dark snyder stuff to see this um uh funny uh keith giffen writing and not funny in the um what's his name uh the the quips guy who did the original uh cut of, of justice league you know what I'm talking about? Uh, uh, Joss Whedon. Yeah, not right. It's it's not it's not Joss Whedon stuff. It's it's like a different sense of humor um, that just you know was not uh, existing in the kind of modern comic book adaptations. Um, so you know, I I, I really like that. Um, I will. I, I don't even want to claim greater nerd cred. Um, <laughs> it's before the internet existed, right? We were all more in our own weird little niches. You know, like what I had a younger brother. Some of my friends had older siblings. So like what stuff the people who happened to be older siblings of my friends were into had like a big influence on what I was exposed to because we didn't have the same you know, monoculture that we do today where like everybody knows this goes with that, where you get these algorithm-driven recommendations that say, you know, oh, if you enjoyed this book, you'll also like this other book. You sort of fell into your own stuff, and life was just a little bit weirder. Hmm. You said that you don't like the new Star Trek shows. Why is that? Uh, I'm just saying I don't like them. I like them less. Um, I think that they – I mean, I think particularly Discovery tries to um, make Star Trek – less itself you know i think that there has been i I shouldn't just speak to discovery i i think that you see in the franchise right that there's this gravitational pull um in almost everything they've done since uh uh the the later stages of, of deep space nine to say this is this is dumb we need to make something that is darker and grittier and kind of show the show the seamy side of things and in Deep Space Nine, I think that works really well. You know, I think that they sort of mash up Gene Roddenberry's sensibilities with um, uh, Ronald Moore's. And it's really interesting. You know, it's it's creative and it highlights some more complexities and some slightly darker themes. And yet at the end of the day, like it's still the Federation that you know and love. They're still doing like the time travel stories and they're showing you the bell riots and, and everything's changing. Um, I think that, you know, the more you try to say, okay, well, we need this to be like gritty. We need it to be dark. We need to have these, these kind of themes that we're importing from elsewhere you're really kind of like just um using the IP, you know, to kind of gain an audience and you're not capturing exactly what was uh, what is distinctive about Trek as a franchise and what makes it um what makes it kind of different and unique. Yeah, I totally agree with that that it's the utopian elements that make Star Trek really distinctive and and memorable. Um 
So, so in, in one of these articles I read, you, you have like your 10 best villains, Star Trek villains, 10 best Star Trek episodes, and 10 best Star Trek crew members. Mm-hmm. And your favorite or your best crew members are Spock and Data. Mm-hmm. And could you talk about why? Why do you think those are the best crew um, members? You know, I mean, there's different... <laughs> Different ways to, uh, to, to think about it. But, you know, uh, to me, those are sort of the most, um, memorable kind of original creations, uh, of the show because they are in an interesting way. They're sort of audience surrogate characters, but they're not typical audience surrogate characters, right? They're audience surrogate characters for nerds. Right. And they are kind of putting you in the case you're somebody who thinks maybe you're a little bit more logical uh, than most of the people, you know, but maybe you don't really get emotion and social interaction all that well. Um, and there's these people or, you know, they're not people, they're Vulcans, they're androids, <laughs> uh, but they are making important contributions uh, to the crew and other people like and respect them. Right. They don't. They sometimes will joke around uh with with Spock, but they, but they don't tease him, right? He's not bullied the way a person who acted like that in a real world uh, kind of situation would be. And the same with with Data. You know, I mean, I talked about the the episode where where he's put on trial, but it's the whole thing, right? Is that he is um, accepted and and welcomed as a peer and a valued member of the crew. He's in command positions. He's given authority. He's taken seriously and he, he's consulted very um, effectively. And that is, I think, sort of like nerd culture for nerds, right? Whereas, um, you know, like Han Solo is this very conventional, cool guy, macho hero. Um, whereas like Spock, right? He's like, the guy who talks a lot about probabilities and, you know, <laughs> uh, says, says, well, we, we, we need to be, we need to be more, more rational or we need to be more utilitarian in our social calculus. It's a very different kind of character. It's a very different kind of character in particular to make a hero rather than a foil. And they're funny at times, right? I mean, data in particular, um, you know, is, is used to generate a lot of humorous plot lines, but he's not the butt of jokes in the way that C3PO is. It's funny you mentioned Spock and the probabilities. Actually, you know, how I got interested in talking to you is I listened <laughs> to your interview with Julia Galef. Yes, she points out that his probabilities are bad. Yeah, that when he says something's impossible, it happens 83% of the time or something like that. Yeah, but see, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna defend Spock against her attacks, <laughs> right? See, because she is assuming that what we see on screen is like a random sample of Spock forecasts and that we should see that he's poorly calibrated there. Uh, but I think that like a lot of stuff goes on in the day of life, but you only make a TV show about the sort of most extraordinary moments, right? So what you're seeing is a lot of outlier kind of situations. And, you know, obviously part of the point of the show is that Spock is always a little too pessimistic and, you know, Kirk has the kind of can do American spirit um, and good for him. But I, I, I choose to believe that off camera, we see more well calibrated, Spock predictions. So they should have just done one episode where it's just like a a normal day where nothing happens and then everything Spock says is totally correct. (laughs) Yeah, or, you know, just like Spock has a more rigorous view of um, 
uh, you know, like the likely outcome of a sports game while the other people are more emotionally invested and engage in wishful thinking. Um, <laughs> Spock sees that, you know, Trump has a good chance of winning the election, uh, while other people, you know, just can't believe it, right? I mean, cause that's, uh, you know, I, to, to Julia's point, right? Um, uh, of her book and, and a lot of this stuff with well for, uh, well calibrated forecasts, right? People engage in a lot of wishful thinking, uh, in life, mostly about sort of banal things, right? Um, Spock is always in these kind of emergency situations that, you know, are a little bit weird, but they make for good TV. I mean, see, the, the idea I've been pitching to people is because both with both Spock and with data, they're rational or logical and they need to learn to express their emotions more. Mm-hmm. And I think there, sh- there should be a show where there's a really emotional character who needs to learn how to be more rational and logical. <laughs> no, I mean, it would be good. You know, it would be good to see, um, somebody who needs to, uh, needs to be a little bit, a little bit more calm, a little bit more chill. Um, you know, I, it's interesting. I mean, obviously the kind of, uh, dichotomization of logic and emotion, uh, that Spock in particular posits, I think does not hold a ton of, uh, weight philosophically speaking. Um, you know, I, I think it doesn't quite make sense because he clearly has desires and aspirations and, and so does, so does data. Uh, so what is that if not emotion, right? I mean, there's no, I think, um, I think David Hume was right about this. There's no way you could sit around and like logic your way to, um, and now I should join Starfleet, right? That's not a, that's not a logical answer to any kind of question. It's not that it's illogical exactly, but like you, you, you can't motivate yourself out of pure logic. And yet these are both characters who do lots of stuff. And they're in fact like very successful, uh, professionals, you know, at, at high levels in their careers. I like it. I like, you're busting out the David Hume reference there because I saw you were a you're a philosophy major. I was, college, yes, right, yeah. Because mm-hmm. um, I read your article. Uh, it's called "A Long Philosophical Rant About Spider-Man 2, which is really, oh, yeah. this is right up my alley because it's like five paragraphs long, and you throw in references to Plato, Aristotle, Kant, and Peter Singer. There you go. Yeah, it's the good stuff. Do you want to just uh, explain? <laughs> <laughs> I have, you know, frankly, probably can't remember half of what I was saying back then. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I did do philosophy in college. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I think that particularly with, um, superhero stuff, I think I'm stealing somebody else's point here, but like a lot of the most interesting superhero stories, right? They're really dramatizing, um, ethical dilemmas, right? That's like the, the point. And it's where I think sometimes, uh, these adaptations fall short because, you know, of course you have superpowered characters fighting each other. That's like always been, um, an important element of the genre, something that happens. Uh, but there's nothing interesting about it. Like, can Superman punch somebody else hard enough to make that person fall down is not an interesting question. <laughs> it's just like part of the characterization is that he can, right? The interesting questions always arise when it's like, well, what if Superman was faced with a problem that is not amenable to being solved by punching somebody really, really hard, right? Um, like in the, um, I, I always enjoyed, I, I think a lot about the, the, the storyline DC did a, a while ago where Lex Luthor becomes president of the United States, uh, because it, um, I don't want to say it, it reminds me of the Trump presidency, but it was like, um, it was like reality recapitulates fiction. 
And, you know, a, a big part of what Superman wrestles with there is like, well, there's this villainous person in the White House and he's doing bad things, but you can't just fly to the White House, drill into the Oval Office and like use heat vision on the president of the United States. It would completely unravel the legitimacy of the hero in society, the stability of the American government, all these kind of things, right? And so he's faced with problems that his superpowers don't solve. And he has the ability to do lots of stuff that a normal person wouldn't. But that then constantly poses him with the question, like, what should I do, right? What are my obligations as this Superman? Um, and that's, you know, um, the, the sort of pat Spider-Man answer is that, you know, with great power comes, comes great responsibility. Um, but then the question is always like, well, what is that like, what does that amount to exactly, right? Does Spider-Man need to completely neglect his family life, his studies, his girlfriend, all in pursuit of helping people? And then, so, you know, I don't have any spider powers, and uh, I assume you don't either. <laughs> um, but there are all things, like, we all have the power to be probably doing more good in the world than we are actually doing right like i give some money to charity i give some money to support food banks and diaper banks here in dc and i give some money to give wells uh, recommended charities doing things like giving incesticide treated uh, bed nets to you know save kids lives from, from malaria um but do i give like all the money that i possibly could uh, th the truth is you know i i don't right i mean like like spider-man just shrugging off a fight because you know he he wants to hang out with his friends or something. Uh, that's me. And it's, it's sort of all of us in our, in our daily lives. And I think it's something that, you know, if you start to think about, right, like it's a, it's a struggle. What, what are your obligations to the world and, and what are the hero's obligations to the world and how heroic do we need to be? And how much difference does it make that, you know, we don't have like the yellow sun doesn't charge me up with superpowers. <laughs> okay. But still it's like how, how altruistic should anyone be? One of the sort of funniest observations I heard about Spider-Man is I was talking to a friend, year, a friend years ago, and she said, you know, in, in Spider-Man, he's always just like walking around and then there's a burning building and he, he goes and rescues people. <laughs> and she's like, I've never been in a situation where if I had spider powers, there's anything, you know, I've never been in a building, you know, I just, yes. it's just funny that you just, you're just, I mean, obviously, I guess you could go out specifically seeking out people in danger and stuff, but just the idea that you have spider powers and you just, walk through your whole life and it's never your, have an opportunity. I, I, to I can think of lots of examples in life when I could have done more to help others, right? Like by contributing to charities or, or things like that. And yes, like I can never, I, I can't think of any time in my life when I could have helped somebody if I had spider powers but due to my lack of spider powers, <laughs> I was not able to be useful. Um, I, I, I guess, and if I want to think of situations that come close, it's actually really petty things, right? Like I could help friends move, right? <laughs> um, like much more easily, right? I could say like, hey, you know, a friend asks like four buddies to come help her move. And I could say like, forget it. Like I can do it single-handedly. Like I have super strength. I've got these webs. Like it's fine. I could, I could pack stuff up really helpfully. Um, things like that. But yeah, like I don't, I mean, I live in a city where there's a decent amount of, um, 
crime happens in, in Washington, D.C., uh, but I've never witnessed it. It's never been that somebody was murdering somebody right in front of my eyes, and if I'd had a web shooter, I could have stopped him. But since I didn't have a web shooter, I, I couldn't do anything, right? Like, I, I don't know. Like, that's not a situation that occurs in life. Uh, Batman seems to very deliberately like go out of his way looking for trouble, uh, which seems a little bit more realistic to me, right? Like I'm, I'm sure I could find some crimes happening uh, if I, if I wanted to do that. Yeah. I also, I want to, before we run out of time, I want to talk about your book, 1 billion Americans. Oh yeah. And the thing that kind of made this, made me interested in this is because there's a lot of discussion in science fiction about how everything's too dystopian and, you know, back in the days of, of Asimov and Heinlein and Clark, that fans were really excited. You know, the future seemed like it was going to be amazing and everyone just couldn't wait to get to the future. Mm -hmm. And now everything's so like depressing and people are afraid of pretty much what the future holds. And this book is really sort of the closest I've come to reading any optimistic science fiction in a long time because you, you know, you, you, you paint this, um, you know, this, this pretty, um, encouraging picture of what America in 2040 could look like if we take the right policy approach. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly my effort to have a book that, um, that tries to say yes, right? I mean, it says, uh, population growth is good, that there are policy levers we could do to do that, that yes, there will be problems with this, traffic congestion, other things like that, uh, but that we can address those. There's housing policy changes. Um, I do not present, I think, a like plausible story about American electoral politics and like why this is going to happen, other than to say that, you know, I think if Americans believe in ourselves, and we should, and we should believe in our country and aspire to greatness and to a more inclusive, more humane vision of ourselves, but also to a patriotic spirit of wanting to remain the leading country in the world. And so I, I do very much see it in those terms. I mean, I, sh I should add, right, I, we talked about Asimov before. Asimov, I always think, is weirdly pessimistic about this specific subject of this book, i.e. population density. Um, you know, the whole theme of the, uh, the, the robot novels is that, like, this is incredibly low living standards on, on Earth, which he describes, if I'm remembering it correctly, as having a population of 8 billion people. <laughs> Um, so they're all for some reason living in underground cities and like eating algae at almost the population that we have today, right? He, he doesn't, um, calculate it correctly. And, and Trantor, um, in the, the later foundation books, um, he's like way off, right? So it's a, it's a global city, right? Where every, every inch of the surface is urbanized, but they have something like 22 billion people, which is like way, way too low and i don't he's a smart guy and i don't know why he didn't like run the numbers on this stuff he needs he needs he needs a much higher numbers of people to generate these outcomes uh, and then he posits that the spacers can have these like really high living standards on on solaria by um like living alone on huge mansions filled with robots and i think it's a, a, like an allegory for the um antebellum south right they're like slave they're like plantation owners using robots instead of uh enslaved african-americans but it doesn't like it doesn't make sense in a modern technological society that uh having control over a lot of agricultural commodities uh would lead to to those kind of riches like it's a, not, nothing works like that it's not it's a very 1840 vision of the world 
Well, right. And it's not like that was specific to Asimov either. I mean, lots and lots of science fiction books and movies, you know, Mm -hmm. had this sort of apocalyptic view of overpopulation. Um, It's like soil and green. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a common theme in the culture. I I just think what to, what makes it odd to me in, in Asimov is that it's not coming from a place of generalized pessimism, right? That he's very optimistic about the, at least material living standards, um, in the low density spacer colonies in, in a weird way, which is different from like a, a, a Blade Runner where it does seem overpopulated, but also it's like generalized ecological collapse, right? Like, I, I mean, I don't know. We, we never, uh, my personal suspicion is that, like on the off-world colonies, things are in fact not that great, and that's why we never see them. I mean, from what I, re- I think, you know, Asimov lived his whole life in Manhattan, mm-hmm. and I think he was fairly agoraphobic, uh, yes. if I'm remembering correctly. So the idea of you know too many people around being this kind of nightmare scenario might 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 actually you know that might <laughs> help explain why he saw that in in such dark terms as opposed to other. Other things. Yeah, I mean, except it's weird because he's in Manhattan his whole life, right? So it's, it's, it's this confusing thing where he's both depicting the, it, it, there's a little bit of a, a, a um, an, like a suburban sprawl allegory, right? Because he lived through the time when New York was kind of depopulating. Although it remained a big city, but like the, the thing to do during his lifetime in the, in the sixties and seventies and eighties was to leave the city. Uh, but he always stayed in Manhattan. Um, and, and by all accounts, he liked it, right? He, he liked the, the kind of small apartments that the New York lifestyle, uh, but he always portrays it. He is sympathetic to the earth people. He sort of provides their point of view, but his assumption is that the spacers and the suburbanites are going to be the the predominant view right and so he he passed away in 1992 so he never he never got to see the sort of resurgence of uh urban living and and new york city um i'm i'm from new york too and i remember i mean i was i was 11 in 1992 but i it was old enough to to remember things and it was just a couple years after that that the city really started to turn and you started to see more people coming in and there being less graffiti and price of everything going up and it's a really different vibe uh starting in the mid 90s right but i really wonder what sort of impact the all these apocalyptic environmental scenarios in science fiction had on people because like I, I certainly you know it made me much more concerned about overpopulation than turned mm-hmm. out to be warranted and i can even remember um the first year I was doing this podcast, you know, I'd, I'd seen Waterworld, right? The mm-hmm. uh, Kevin Costner movie where the polar ice caps melt and, and flood the whole world. There's no dry lands left. And I remember asking one of the guests, he had written a book about geoengineering. And I asked mm-hmm. him, you know, if, if, if everything, if all the ice on earth melted, would it flood the whole planet? And he's like, no, it would raise the sea levels like three feet or something like that. And so like, you know, like you do sort of pick up this idea of, of how bad things could be from these movies, which, you know, often turns out to be sort of not connected to reality. Yeah. I, you know, when I, I'm always, I always struggle with this stuff because you ask someone, you're like, okay, well, what if the polar ice caps completely melt? Would we really all be underwater? And the answer is no, right? Sea level rises three or four feet. And then you say, well, what does that mean? And it turns out it means it's like tens of millions of people uh, die and more are displaced from their homes. Lots of people live in low lying coastal areas. And it's actually this huge tragedy, but it is so far short 
of that kind of apocalypse that you would make in a, a movie, right? And what is left out of those kind of scenarios is that, um, this is, you know, to get back to, to Star Trek, right? Is that if technology keeps improving, then like on net, you still end up better off, like even as there are some downsides. And that's the actual trajectory, uh, that, that we see in our planet, right? Like there's obviously less natural beauty in America today than there was 400 years ago. Um, there have been some, some losses, very real losses, uh, to nature and to, to humans, uh, say nothing of, of the Native American population associated with all that growth. But in the aggregate, there's more people. The people are better off. Living standards are higher. The problems are very much manageable. Um, and I think it's challenging, though, to sort of tell those kinds of stories. Um, and then it's striking to look at uh, not, not historical fiction, but like the opposite of science fiction, like realistic fiction that was just written in the past. Um, and you see, you know, like, the living standards are really low in Charles Dickens's books, uh, in Tolstoy's books and Dostoevsky's books, right? People are living in tiny rinky dink structures. They're really cold all winter. Um, things have just gotten much better over time. Yeah. And I, I don't want to, um, minimize the, the environmental problems, which I'm very, very concerned about in terms of, you know, uh, animal extinction and, and things like that in particular. But, um, just, just like the, the growing up with this idea, like in the year 2000, people will be killing each other over the last jar of strawberry jam. You know, it's <laughs> like that kind of stuff. Like I, I took it, you know, I, it's sort of embarrassing to think how seriously I took that stuff now, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to say, but yes, I mean, it is true. There is too much apocalyptic thinking out there, uh, because it makes it hard. I, I mean, I think it's a problem, right? I mean, I think that there is a view that if something is bad, if it's a real problem, that the best thing to do is to state the problem in the bleakest possible terms, because that will motivate people uh, to go take action. I don't think that that's right as a theory of human motivation. I think it is... um People take action to avoid small harms all the time, for one thing. Like, it's just, it, it, if you can do things to be helpful, that is good to do. If there are problems that we can address, it's good to address them. Uh, but also, it can lead to, you know, sort of paralysis, right? I, I when I, I, I did my book and, uh, you know, so I went touring, I did some podcasts, I did some radio interviews. And something that I learned was that while official, uh, environmental groups in Washington have all stopped being like population control people and anti-immigration people, a lot of the grassroots, a lot of grassroots people, particularly in the Western part of the country, are just incredibly paranoid about immigration's impact on the environment. And if you think of us as being near some kind of tipping point at which the whole ecology collapses, that makes a lot of sense. But when you realize that that's not true, that all these things are scalar and that like it, it's just inhumane to say that, well, we're going to not let people come to the United States of America because it has some incremental impact on uh, ecological burdens. I mean, one thing I, you, you mentioned, like, is that how realistic is it that you're 
um, your policy proposals would actually get implemented. And one thing I was thinking of while, while I was reading the book is that there was this freak out. It was about eight years ago or so, maybe around there, where um, I, I forget, there was some very modest UN proposal or report or something that led to this whole panic around Agenda 21 and Americans oh, yeah. being forced to live in Hobbit homes and, and all this kind of stuff. And it just makes me wonder, you know, I mean, there must you, you think that there must be some sort of paranoid backlash to tripling the pop, the U.S. population, to even just talking about tripling the U.S. population when stuff like that is going on? Probably. I don't know. You know, it was interesting because uh, the, the book came out at a time when, um, because of George Floyd and other things, there was uh, a, a lot of people on the right who were just like really excited that the book um, is like sort of patriotic. Uh, which, you know, was not my intention. Yeah, I, I don't know if you, books just take a long time, you know, between like when you start writing the proposal and you pitch them and then you got to write them and then there's all this time to, you know, edit, finish the book. So everything winds up being released at a different moment from when it was conceived. Uh, so it wound up being, I think, received as a more, um, politically moderate than I originally would have thought. And I did not get that kind of like paranoia response from a lot of people. Uh, maybe if I could do it all over again, I could generate. <laughs> I wanted more backlash. You know, when you're an author, like you, you want to court controversy. Well, yeah, I, I saw you went on like Ben Shapiro and Gwen Beck and the Federalist yeah. and, and places like that. And they were pretty, I didn't, I listened to the Ben Shapiro one. I didn't listen <laughs> to the others, but they were, they're pretty receptive to it or. I mean, I don't want to say they were receptive, but we, we had, we had friendly conversations, you know, um, you can, as a host, right, you can have different, uh, takes on things. And like Shapiro was not doing a, uh, let me yell about how dumb this guy is kind of interview with me, right? He, I think thought it was interesting. Um, and you know, we do not see eye to eye about many, many, many things. Uh, the Beck interview was weirder because he's a weird guy, but, um, we we managed to reach agreement on Woodrow Wilson being bad. <laughs> I guess I mean one of the um and like like you know you said you grew up in in Manhattan you know I, I grew up in in Westchester and I've you know spent a lot of my life in and around the the New York literary scene and so I mm -hmm. thought one of the things that was interesting in this book is you talk about moving book publishing out of New York City and mm -hmm. the different benefits that would have I guess um I guess one thing is that you know there's just been this sort of um. Uh, there's this phenomenon, la phenomenon lately of people uh, who work at publishing houses disapproving of the books that the house is publishing and trying to kind of scuttle it internally. Yeah. And I wonder if moving – if it wasn't all the same people from the same schools living in the same zip code in Brooklyn, if uh, that might be less of, a, less of an issue. Yeah. I mean there's a – there's a lot of different ways to look at that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, it's not going to be viable for like the book publishing and media industries to so strictly reflect the political beliefs of the kinds of people who like to live in New York City. You know, I, I, I like New York. I mean, I, I like DC. I, I like big cities, all, all that kind of stuff. But, um, politics has become much more polarized along lines of population density and educational attainment. So that if you get a bunch of college graduates who live in a big city, like there's nothing wrong with college graduates living in a big city, but their consensus political opinions are going to be way to the left of the national center, which is fine. Uh, but just like as a, 
business proposition. Uh, you can't run a book publishing house that way. Like that, it doesn't make sense commercially. It also doesn't really make sense intellectually, right? That's not, um, like, how, how are, I don't know. There's like a lot of conservative people in America. They're going to write and buy books. There's no sense in like trying to stop them, uh, because among other things, like it's, it's not going to work anyway. So like what, like what, what's the point? What's it for? It seems very petty to me. I just thought, just as a historical footnote, I never knew this, that the reason that book publishing is centered in New York City in the first place was because that was the most effective place to uh, pirate English books. Uh, yeah, and apparently, I, I, I got this a little bit wrong after some, some historians got to me. So there used to be a lot of publishing in Boston uh, as well for similar reasons because they were closer to the boats. And then after the Erie Canal and stuff, uh, New York City becomes the primary uh, port of entry for goods uh, into the United States. And so, yeah, uh, we did not enforce English copyrights. And so you could literally send books from London to New York, get them off the boat, copy them, and then distribute them all throughout the country. And that's why book publishing is in New York City. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you, so in when you're talking about, um, uh, there was this thing called the Rays Act, um, which was going to make it sort of try to make it um, have more stringent requirements for immigrants to, to come to the U.S. And mm -hmm. you point out that one of the example you give is that Casual Ishiguro would have a difficult time immigrating to the U.S. under this system. And I was just curious if there was any particular reason you chose Kasuo Ishiguro or is he a favorite author of yours or, or anything? I, like I think it was my wife was reading one of his books at the time I was working on this. And, you know, I was looking for, for examples. I mean, I think I use, uh, Giannis Yeah, I can't say Giannis Antetokounmpo's last name correctly as another one. You know, my point about that was just that, um, this is a Tom Cotton bill and, you know, he's trying to reshape the immigration system to, uh, focus more on labor market skills, which, you know, I, I don't think is a crazy idea conceptually. Um, but then he does it in such a like incredibly paranoid way, right? Where it, that, that, that it becomes very, um, very, very limited, very restrictive. And I don't know, you know, I, he's, I think, one of the smartest people in the Republican caucus. Um, he's, he's shrewd. Um, but then, then I always have the question with a guy like that is like, does he want to tone it down two notches and be in a position to get things done? Or does he want to kind of like troll and own the libs? And I feel like the Rays Act is like, it's, it's dancing on that margin, right? That if you could take the spirit of that law, but like chill out a little bit. I, I think you might get some support for it, but it's but it's quite extreme and it's sort of skill based stringency. I was going to say, you know, that I you know I interviewed Casho Ishiguro a couple years ago, and oh, there you go. at the end of the interview, you know, for about twenty minutes, he's just like, "I'm just curious about science fiction. Could I ask you some questions about science fiction?" And so <laughs> you can go and listen to it, but you know, for like twenty minutes, he asked me like, "Oh, what do you think of?" Neil Gaiman, what do you think of all this stuff, you know? And that's the only time that's ever happened to me in, you know, 11 years of interviewing authors. And so uh, I'm pretty impressed. I'm pretty impressed with his uh, curiosity. Good for him. Yeah. Well, you mentioned your wife. I was going to, in the um, acknowledgments, you say, um, my wife, Katie, keeps it real in terms of what people actually want to read. And I was just curious, uh, what do people actually, actually want to read? 
<laughs> oh, I mean, I'm not saying she has a big theory. I'm just saying she's, uh, you know, I, I, I love my wife and, and I think, uh, she loves me and we respect each other, but she's, um, she's not as interested in the things that I am always interested in and cover. And it's a good, uh, you know, like, like yin and yang to not just be like in the same, uh, zone of obsessions all the time. I mean, was there anything in the book that you included or were planning to include where she's kind of like, nah, this is, this is boring? <laughs> Everybody's got to see the, the, the original draft went on a much greater length about commuter rail and like she, my editor, everybody was like, you got to take it out. It made me so sad, but you know, it's all, it's all, I think they were correct. <laughs> um, all right, cool. So, uh, we're pretty much out of time. So, um, so why don't we start wrapping this up? So do you have any just uh, any other final thoughts or any other uh, projects you want to let people know about? Um, you know, I, I write a, a sort of daily politics newsletter. It's slowboring.com. I hope people will check it out. Um, and uh, yeah, that's really what I got. Hmm. Uh, all right, great. So we've been speaking with Matthew Iglesias about his new book, One Billion Americans. So Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Matthew Iglesias for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarrKirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.